Hi, everyone. We just wanted to remind you before we start the show that today's episode is a continuation of our bonus mini-season following season two. After this episode, we have one more bonus episode that we know you won't want to miss, so be sure to tune back in in two weeks. Also, as with last week, because of the ongoing novel coronavirus pandemic and the stay-at-home orders, this interview was conducted remotely. We apologize if there are any technical errors in the audio or the sounds of kids playing in the background. Again, thank you all so much for listening. Now here's today's episode. Because it is a pandemic, because this is something that's being experienced all around the world and that countries have different capacities for both treatment, testing and tracing. Um, You know, in in refugee camps, um, there's a lot of fear. I think one of the things to highlight with pandemics is that um, just as we're seeing in the U.S. that, you know, existing inequalities and inequities are in fact exacerbated and kind of come to light through the pandemic, the same thing is true on a global scale. You're listening to Seeking Refuge, a podcast about the human stories behind refugees. Your host for this week is Jackie Burnett. Dr. Brianne Grace, a professor in the College of Social Work at the University of South Carolina. Hello, Dr. Grace, um, and welcome back to Seeking Refuge, your very first episode, and we're so excited to have you on here again. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's just lovely to be here virtually with you for this podcast. So if you could start off just quickly by introducing yourself. Sure. I'm um, Brianne Grace. Um, I'm an assistant professor um, at the University of South Carolina in the College of Social Work. Um, I am a sociologist by training, um, although I have the lovely pleasure of teaching um, social policy um, in the College of Social Work, and I, um, my research focuses on refugees, so it's quite a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you. Well, we're obviously in the midst of a global pandemic, and it has impacted billions of people's lives all around the world in so many different ways. And some of these stories we've heard before, and some of these we have not. Um, The refugee story, how refugees experience outbreaks and pandemics, is one I haven't heard, um, and one I'm hoping you can illustrate a little bit today. So to begin, um, based on your experience and research working with refugee, working in refugee camps in East Africa, how are disease outbreaks generally experienced in the camps? Sure, so um, I should say that before I got my PhD and started doing research, I um, worked in refugee camps. Um, and so I worked in humanitarian aid. And so in that capacity, a lot of my job was planning for you know, a potential pandemic that was at that time yet um, yet to be known, yet to be identified. Um, and I worked in camps in East Africa. And during my time, um, there were sometimes um, small-scale outbreaks of different diseases in countries around um, the country where I worked in. So Ebola, for instance, there were sometimes small outbreaks of Ebola. Um, And so part of my job was trying to develop strategies and plans for the camp um, and to consider kind of long-term planning and how do you actually keep people safe if there was to be an outbreak. 
um, either an outbreak, a small scale outbreak, or you know, of course, um, part of a pandemic. Um, and so it was things like checking infrastructure, checking capacity, trying to um, work with researchers, um, especially zoologists who were studying kind of animal human transmission, um, trying to kind of get ahead of some of the unknowns so that if something were to occur, um, we would, you know, at least have a, a running start um, in order to both address people's immediate health concerns, health needs, as well as um, potentially um, examine tracing. Now, um, what I'm seeing right now, though, in my research is that, um, you know, because it is a pandemic, because this is something that's being experienced all around the world, and that countries have different capacities for both treatment, testing, and tracing. Um, you know, in, in refugee camps, um, there's a lot of fear. So um, as you can imagine, right now, the United States is um, very concerned about things like ventilators. But if you're in a refugee camp, um, that won't even be possible. Um, or ventilators are very rare. And so, you know, people are scared. If they get it, how are they going to be treated? Um, refugees in the United States um, are sending money back um, to help their family members prepare. So to do things like buy hand sanitizer sometimes, um, make sure they have enough fruits and vegetables and kind of nutritious foods um, so that they, if they do get it, they have a better chance. Of surviving it, um, you know, to help people travel um, if they are sick um, from refugee camps, sometimes to um, you know larger cities where they might be able to go to a hospital. Um, you know, there are all sorts of kind of variables here, but I think one of the things to highlight with pandemics is that um, just as we're seeing in the UL, U.S. that you know existing inequalities and inequities are in fact exacerbated and kind of come to light through the pandemic, the same thing is true on a global scale. That where there um, is a limited health infrastructure um, in place, um, health disparities um, in fact grow. Um, and places where um, there are limited resources for treating diseases, those places, um, you know, it's a little bit scary to be in those places and a little more uncertain. You mentioned um, that in the United States, we're all worried about having enough ventilators in, in refugee camps. That's not a worry because they, it's worrying about having like even one or um, that they don't have enough. Is this due to a lack of funding or is this the countries that are um, like a lack of funding in general or are the countries allocating funding to more like central hospitals um, or how, why don't they have any ventilators? Yeah, well, so I should start by saying it varies a lot by country, right? So not all refugee camps are the same and not all refugee camps have the same infrastructure. Um, but in many of the camps where I worked, um, the infrastructure is highly dependent upon um, UNHCR. And so it's not that UNHCR isn't putting funding in, but it's more that um, there are real challenges for creating a robust health infrastructure um, in refugee camps. And in fact, many of the countries um, overall don't have the health infrastructure, particularly in rural areas where refugee camps tend to be located. So it's not that necessarily refugee camps um, have 
are being neglected per se, but more that um, the countries themselves in general just don't have the infrastructure, especially in rural areas. So not only are there significant health disparities um, kind of between people ha who have resources to seek private health care and people who don't, but also um, between rural and urban. So um, in Tanzania, for instance, um, right now, um, there's a little, a, a lot of political concern about the virus and about the capacity of hospitals to be able to treat in general. Now in refugee camps, you know, it's not that, it is also an issue, right? So just like in rural Tanzania, hospitals don't have the ventilators or the capacity um, to treat, you know, extreme cases um, of COVID-19. The, the same is true in refugee camps. And, you know, there are a number of limitations. So there are shortages of doctors. There are, sh there are in some places, um, in rural areas isn't electricity that you would need to run a ventilator. Um, sanitation, um, you know, there are sanitation shortages where their um, clean water isn't directly available or pipes clean water isn't available. Um, you know, uh, there are a lot of different issues um, at play here. And so refugee camps, um, you know, are similarly situated where they too um, lack some of those resources to really be able to address um, and treat. Um, in the United States, one way we have tried to slow the spread of the pandemic is by social distancing and staying at home and staying six feet away from people. Does the lack of adequate room in refugee camps, the tents or the buildings right next to each other, does that make outbreaks more severe? Yeah, I mean, it absolutely can. Um, it's not only that the, the buildings are right next to each other, but there are shared bathroom facilities often. And so, um, yeah, it's not only the proximity, but the number of shared spaces where um, people have to go in order to have their basic needs met. So um, accessing food, accessing water, accessing bathroom facilities. Um, all of these spaces are kind of shared spaces. And so not only is it really difficult to socially distance because of kind of proximity, but um, it's really hard to maintain any um, shared level of sanitation because so many of those spaces are shared. It seems to me more like a college dorm or college campus and that you have so many people in one area sharing all these facilities and we've been lucky enough to be able to go home from college campuses um, but if you can't do that then that seems like a area that's just ripe for outbreaks to spread very quickly yeah um, that is absolutely one way to think of it it's like it's like um a college dorm um if the buildings were much more rudimentary and there was no piped water or indoor plumbing actually is the better way to say it Around the world, countries are restricting international travel and immigration. Um, President Trump recently issued an executive order suspending all immigration to the United States for 60 days. How has this impacted President Trump's example and others, um, refugees either fleeing persecution or seeking resettlement? Yeah, so um, on the one hand, it's really easy to think about this as something related to COVID-19, but I think that would be a mistake. So um, 
you know, we are in a, what is now a long trajectory of restrictionist immigration policy. Um, and this is just a continuation of that in the name of the disease. Um, so yes, um, these policies will definitely hurt people, especially family reunification cases. Um, and and uh, it really hurts people who are seeking green card or uh, yeah, spousal reunification. Um, but you know, the refugee program has already been cut fairly drastically. Um, overseas processing has already stopped. Um, so in some ways, it, it hurts refugee resettlement less, but that's only because refugee resettlement is now at its lowest level ever. Um, and so, you know, it, this is part of a longer um, trajectory of um, restrictionist immigration policies. Now, on a global scale, there are concerns about, for instance, um, you know, humanitarian aid to asylum seekers in the Mediterranean, where because of the cutbacks to Coast Guards, um, people, there are reports of people um, not being rescued, um, people, more people dying at sea, things like that. Um, I think that the other thing is because there's so much economic instability, um, we see a lot of um, immigrants and refugees being scapegoated and a lot of kind of xenophobia um, that is emerging through this. And so some of the, um, some of the examples of what we are seeing in the United States is actually like an increase in hate crimes directed at um, refugees um, from Asian countries. Um, so while, you know, the hate crimes often invoke China, they're not, not, they're not limited to being, um, you know, uh, committed against only Chinese nationals, right? We see it against Asian Americans, we see it against refugees from Asian countries. Um, and so it's problematic on a number of levels. In one of your articles, you've discussed the violence of uncertainty, which, correct me if I'm wrong, is how policies in the United States concerning resettled refugees are either unclear or rapidly changing, which means that refugees then face fear and uncertainty around certain actions, such as going to school or even to the doctor. How might this phenomenon impact a resettled refugee's experience of pandemics such as the one we're in? Yeah, so um, right now, one of the things that I am seeing a lot of refugees respond to is something called the Public Charge Act. Um, and so um, there was a recent um, policy change through an executive order um, from President Trump that made, um, that essentially said that Immigrants who are seeking special services um, can be denied citizenship for using services, particular services. Now, um, there, <laughs> let me say that there, it is both a um, broad order and a vague order. Um, and it's not actually the order itself, but the idea of the order that is scaring people. So the, the idea that something you could have done before you knew about this could be used against you to deny you citizenship or a green card in the future is really scary, right? You think you're doing everything right, and then suddenly, um, six years from now, somebody's holding that against you. And so um, it's not even the specific criteria within the order, but the fact that social services are kind of being weaponized, that is scaring some refugees. And so 
um, right now with COVID-19, one of the things that we're seeing is that people are afraid of um, accessing healthcare, of getting tested, um, of even using health services in general, um, because they're afraid that sometime down the line, it will be um, used against them to deny them citizenship. Um, and so it's really scary. I mean, what do you, you know, it, it's kind of this thought that all of the social services that are supposed to support you now suddenly could actually be kind of weaponized against you. So um, that's one of the things that we're seeing where kind of the uncertainty that that um, law created um, caused a lot of upheaval in people's lives. Um, in that article, we also talk about hate crimes. So, um, you know, the increase in hate crimes is also part of that where, you know, the uncertainty is that you, you, you arrive in the United States and you expect to be socially supported, to be welcomed. You're kind of told that, you know, because of what you've experienced as a refugee, now the United States wants you um, and only to arrive and to experience violence from your neighbors. Um, and so I think COVID-19 um, is a great example of that where um, people, from Burma, for instance, um, are arriving in the United States um, and then experiencing hate crimes um, and you know violence because people are calling them Chinese immigrants. And so it's very it's both extremely confusing and extremely scary where you don't understand what's going on or why it's happening. I will also say that this is something that we are seeing with um, people who also arrived as refugees. 30 or more years ago where, you know, maybe you came from Vietnam or, you know, your parents came from Vietnam a long time ago and now you are being targeted um, as being anti-American. And not only are you a citizen or perhaps you were even born here that your parents came as refugees and you were born in the United States, but suddenly this anti-Asian um, sentiment is being kind of weaponized against people. And that's pretty scary where it's, you know, your Americanness is in question, or your welcome, or your belonging here. Um, and, you know, and that's, it's scary. Have hate crimes against refugees been steadily increasing? And then is the increase in, in hate crimes due to COVID-19, is that simply part of a trend that has been happening for the past few decades, yeah. probably? Um, yeah, so, well, yeah, so hate crimes against certain populations, um, particularly Muslim refugees, have been rising since September 11th. So, um, but against Asian um, immigrants and refugees, the data is less clear. Um, but there has definitely been an uptick um, since kind of January. And so, yeah, so I should say that hate crime data is um, incredibly difficult to study anyways, um, and that it's mostly because most hate crimes do not get reported, because the same thing um, that causes the hate crime also leads you to fear reporting the hate crime, if that makes sense. Um, a distrust of um, the Americans around you, or the, you know, the government and the systems around you. Um, and so, but one thing we do know is that there has been a rise in anti-Asian um, sentiment and an increase in hate, the number of hate crimes against Asian Americans, um, Asian immigrants, Asian refugees. Um, but um, 
we, it's, it's hard to, it's, yes, it is rising, but we don't know how much it is rising because um, it is so poorly reported, so poorly studied. Um, and, you know, um, people don't report um, out of fear, which is, you know, a often a legitimate fear, especially if you're facing violence. In addition to this fear of going to the doctor, um, of getting tested for COVID-19 or getting treatment, what other barriers do resettled refugees face to being prepared for a pandemic and getting treatment? To my mind comes like language or economic, if you have economic barriers. So if you could speak oh, yeah. to that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, language and healthcare settings is a huge barrier as, as you suggest. So, um, you know, uh, improper interpretation in hospital settings is a barrier that refugees face, especially if they come from places with um, fairly rare or sometimes they're called um, least commonly taught languages or um, languages that are a little bit more obscure. Um, and so, or if they are able to get interpretation through something like Language Line, which is a tele-interpretation service, sometimes um, particular dialects can be difficult to access where people, um, right, you might speak the right language, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you um, understand the person who's on the other side of the phone. Um, and so that can be a huge challenge. It can also be a huge challenge as you think about describing symptoms um where you know there is a real specificity that is going on right now in the screening process with COVID-19 um where because there's such a shortage in the number of tests um not only um is it challenging for people to get tested but it's especially challenging for people to get tested when English is not their first language and they may not have the really um, hyper-nuanced language that's required in some of these screening protocols. And so that's been a challenge. Um, I mean, economic barriers are huge. Refugees um, tend to um, work in precarious positions immediately upon arrival. So refugees who are fairly new arrivals um, often work in low-wage jobs and are already economically precarious. And so, you know, if you're laid off, you often don't have the savings in place um, in order to access, um, you know, or to continue to survive. Likewise, um, state to state, there's some variation in unemployment benefits and when people are eligible for unemployment, um, and that can affect people. Also, refugees sometimes work in industries um, that put people in very close contact. So like meat processing plants where people are working on a line um, in very, very close contact, doing very dangerous work. Um, and we're seeing a number of outbreaks in places like meat processing plants across the country um, where, you know, huge, huge numbers of people um, all working the same shift become infected. Um, and so, you know, their refugees face a lot of challenges right now, especially newly arrived, arrived refugees, um, whether it be economic, whether it be social, whether um, it be about health. Yeah, there are a lot of challenges. I know it varies state to state, but are refugees who have not yet become past that one year and become green card holders or are not yet citizens, are they eligible for unemployment benefits? 
That's a great question. And um, I know it varies state to state, but I don't know what the baseline kind of minimum is. Um, but that is a good question. I'll have to look it up. Um, also, our refuge, our resettlement agencies, I know it also probably varies state to state, our resettlement agencies considered essential businesses and allowed to stay open and continue helping refugees? And are those language classes and employment classes continuing? It does vary a lot state to state. Um, I think in most states, um, the language classes have been put on hold. I think um, some services are considered essential services, um, such as case management, but how they're actually operationalized is different. So I know in some locations, um, there is kind of tele case management going on where people are, um, are calling to check in on, um, you know, their refugee clients. Um, in some places it continues in person, um, but that has a lot to do with kind of state definitions of essential services and um, kind of state interest. Thank you so much. Is there anything on your mind that you want to say to our listeners? Anything that I haven't covered that you really want people to hear? Oh goodness, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think that one of the things about pandemics um, is that it brings out or highlights the, the inequities that already exist in our society. And for many refugee families, some of the barriers that they already face in the United States and in refugee camps and um, kind of everywhere in the world, those barriers, those inequities are really bright, being brought to the fore. And it's also those inequities that often make people the most vulnerable to disease. So things like limited um, access to nutritious foods, limited access to healthcare, um, language barriers and healthcare settings, um, living conditions that are less than secure um, and uh, I think as kind of it both in the United States as a country that welcomes refugees as well as globally one of our real challenges after this will be to think hard about how do we rectify some of these situations and how do we especially find the political will um, to ensure um, that people have the basic things that they need in order to live and survive. Pandemics highlight how communities are all interconnected and how my health is dependent upon your health. And so as we um, kind of continue to deny people basic services, what we're really doing is denying, you know, our community health in general. Um, so my hope is that this might highlight for us not only why is it kind of a human rights issue to provide, um, for instance, healthcare to everyone, but also to highlight why someone else's healthcare access is intricately tied to my healthcare access and um, to motivate political change moving forward. That's a great point. It seems if only for purely selfish reasons that a lot of these um, the uncertainty with refugees that discourages them from going to the doctor only hurts myself or only hurts your your own health because of the nature of pandemics so even for just purely selfish reasons if that's all you're looking at it seems counterintuitive a lot of these measures that's right i mean i really wish that you know human rights messaging really resonated with everyone and would really motivate change you know, the human rights messaging alone would motivate change, but clearly that hasn't happened over the past 50, 60 years. And so if it's not, if 
if that's not going to resonate, what do we actually need to see? And I can think of, you know, nothing that motivates people more than their own health outcomes. And so perhaps um, this will help with that. Well, thank you so much for um, talking with me today and for illuminating the refugees um, story concerning refugees just a little bit more. Yes, it was, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this bonus episode of Seeking Refuge. If you want to get into contact with us, you can email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com or follow us at refugepodcast on Twitter. Also, a huge thanks to Maxi International House for making this show possible. This show comes out every two weeks, so subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and we'll see you in the next one.